Greetings from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today I'm talking with Asa Winstanley. He is an investigative journalist at Electronic Intifada. He also has a Substack, which we'll link to in the show notes. Today, Asa and I are going to be talking about his new book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. Asa Stanley, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Aaron. So you have written a new book on Jeremy Corbyn and the way that he was destroyed with dubious accusations of anti-Semitism. Um, can you give us, uh, this is, I think I'm primarily American listeners, and I think we know who Jeremy Corbyn is, but... Maybe you could just give a quick rundown on like how Jeremy Corbyn came to office and how this was a, an odd, a strange thing because he was not a typical party leader, and yet he, he found himself uh, in power, the most progressive uh, person, in, or not in power, but you know, in, in charge of a party for a, for a moment, uh, it, which was mm -hmm. very surprising. And how did this how did this happen? This humble, seemingly decent guy finds himself in a in a high position in politics. It's very strange in the West. It is, you're right, and it was an unusual circumstance. So the Labour Party is a really kind of, well, it's a right-wing party, really, is what it is. I mean, uh, uh, Tony Benn, who was famously on the left of the party, said that the Labour Party was not a socialist party, but it was a party with socialists in it. So the Labour Party began as, uh, I mean... Uh, I guess we don't want to get into the whole history of it, but it began as a socialist party, but it was always a kind of um, social democratic party. And it was always an imperialist party. This is this is the thing that really set Jeremy Corbyn apart, was that he was an anti-imperialist. So he was part of the left-wing fringe of the Labour Party. And he was involved in all these kind of popular movements for peace, um, you know, he comes from, I mean, I don't think strictly speaking, he's a pacifist exactly. I mean, I think he believes in the right to self-defense, but he comes from this sort of British, um, almost, although he's not a religious man particularly, but he comes from this almost British Christian pacifist kind of tradition in a way, um, with mixed with certain left-wing tendencies, I would argue, that this kind of English radicalism that does have a kind of long history in that way. And um, you're right, he was the most unlikely person to lead a the Labour Party, which by the time of his first election to the leadership of the Labour Party in 2015, had, you know, the Labour Party had been through years where it was a thoroughly neoliberal party, especially... It, I mean, the Labour Party had been sliding to the right progressively over the years in the 80s and the 90s. But by the mid 90s, when Tony Blair took over, it had become a thoroughly neoliberal party, which openly admired Margaret Thatcher, who was obviously, you know, the the bosom buddy of Ronald Reagan in the States, where she was need, leading what they called reforms, neoliberal reforms, uh, prior, leading privatisation, shutting down the coal mines, you know, defeating trade unions, um, 
really kind of destroying the country in a lot of ways. And the Labour Party was really carrying on her work in in those kinds of areas, but it was uh, under Tony Blair. And also Tony Blair, you know, carried on this legacy in the War of Terror era by joining the US Empire and its wars overseas, um, you know, supporting the dismantling of U- Yugoslavia, um, invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq, and birthing ISIS, essentially. Um and so the the Labour Party has really gone through these kinds of um uh reversion to the to the right to the neoliberal right. And in twenty fourteen, the last person you could imagine leading it would be Jeremy Corbyn, because he yes, he was a Labour Party MP, but he was kept on as a kind of fringe element, I suppose, in a way which helped almost helped i mean you could argue some people would argue it kind of helped tony blair in a way because the left leftist elements of his party which were more from the grassroots were then sort of kept under the thumb because they were marginalized on the fringes of the party but what happened in 2014 2015 there was a kind of um fabricated uh, and it went back a bit earlier than that as well but there was without getting into the whole history of it, but there was there was this kind of fabricated crisis where trade unions, which, you know, working class trade unions were trying to get more influence back on the Labour Party after Tony Blair went out of office. Um, and they were trying to influence the party more for, for working class interests. And then that was kind of manufactured into a kind of uh, fake... Uh, almost smear, really, where there were, there was... The, the, the papers were saying, oh... The trade union bosses, trade union fat cats, or however they put it, were trying to take over the Labour Party again. And there was this kind of fake corruption scandal engineered. And as a result of all that, the Labour Party under Gordon Brown, well, the successor to Tony Blair was Gordon Brown. And then the successor to him was Ed Miliband, who was kind of on the soft, what's called the soft left of the party. Well, under Ed Miliband, what happened was they changed the rules of the Labour Party's internal elections. So, you know, for US, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners are US listeners and they, what you have to understand about politics in Britain is that we don't have primaries like you have in in the States where, you know, all you have to do is register as a Democrat voter and then you can vote in the Democratic primaries. Um, You can't do that. You can't, if, if you're a Labour Party normal voter, you can't just vote in and to in the Labour Party's internal elections to choose who's going to be the Labour Party leader. Until 2015, you had to be a Labour Party member to do that. But this reforms uh, under Ed Miliband changed the rules and they broadened, they broadened it out to make it easier. It wasn't quite as open as the primary system in the US, but they broadened it out to make it easier to for, for, for people to vote in the Labour Party's elections. And ironically... This was actually a project at the time of the Labour Party right because or it partially it was I mean it was partially due to pressure for the from the Labour Party right the sort of atlanticist um dominant wing of the Labour Party right where they um wanted it they wanted to make the Labour Party more like the sort of um Hillary Clinton machine where they and they were sort of so deluded into thinking well of course the general public supports us they want Tony Blair back or they want a new Tony Blair to take over the Labour Party. 
because they didn't like Ed Miliband because you know even the soft left was too much for them they wanted they wanted really they wanted Tony Blair back but certainly someone like him but what they wanted to happen didn't happen what actually happened was there was a mass movement which entered the Labour Party or re-entered the Labour Party in 2015 during the summer leadership elections to vote for Jeremy Corbyn so over the years there had always been like a left-wing or quite often been a left-wing candidate in Labour's internal elections, they never stood a chance, really, because the it was really the MPs who had the... Members could vote, but MPs had a lot of power. They, they had much more of a veto. But the rules in 2015 were loosened, and they made it much easier to vote for a popular leftist candidate. And as between 2015 and 2016, as many as, some estimates say, 200,000 people joined the Labour Party, either joined as members or joined as what was called an affiliated supporter where you could just pay £3, like what, like $5 or roughly thereabouts, to become a a, a, a supporter of the Labour Party, which meant you, they could vote in internal elections. And people did that to, to vote for Jeremy Corbyn because what happened was the entire British left kind of for a moment united around Jeremy Corbyn. They put aside their what I refer to as their ancestral vendettas. Um, and they came together in this kind of moment. And it was it was almost seen as a, a, a joke is maybe too harsh a word, but it was always seen as, well, we can get one back on the Blairites because they'll hate this, <laughs> you know, Jeremy Corbyn, if he had like a... At least if he's on the ballot. First of all, is, well, we can get him on the ballot. And then... You know, around about July, I think it was 2015, um, mainstream polling firms started to predict out of the blue that he would win the elections, that the internal uh, Labour Party election for the leader. And it was this really electrifying moment where um, the mainstream media was in like full denial about this. They were like, no, this is just an outlier poll. And then and they were saying this will never happen. Jeremy Corbyn is never going to become leader of the Labour Party. Um, and eventually it happened and he won because people wanted his policies like he the thing is as well although he was portrayed as this radical far left um you know extremist marxist whatever he wasn't like uh, i mean what he was proposing was really traditional moderate social democracy really that's what he was promoting and and on top of that peace like the peace movement and anti-imperialism to a, to a large extent, um, so his policies, his proposed policies, were just things like renationalizing the railways. Well, the privatized rail system in this country is a complete disaster to the point where even a lot of Tory voters, a lot of Conservative Party voters, you know, the equivalent of the U.S. Republicans, a lot of them thought that was a good policy that we would have a national go back to how it was. It used to be National Rail, it used to be just be one publicly owned company. Instead of all this, you know, chaotic kaleidoscope of companies which have to be subsidized anyway by the public, but they they're still extracting profits for their shareholders. Well, Corbyn thought, well, this is stupid. We should bring it back into public ownership. None of the Labour Party before him was willing to say that, but he did, and it changed things. And it wasn't just that; it was on lots of things like that, where you know, stopping the privatization of the NHS, the National Health Service, um, where we have free health care. Um, financed by um, public, by taxation, by general taxation. 
Um, and you know his history in the anti-war movement, in in the peace movement, and um, the anti-racist movement, and so forth as well. At a grassroots level, he had that grassroots involvement for years. Meant that everybody on all different strands of the left, uh, really everybody from the even anarchists to you know social democrats, Trotskyists, and the various uh, communist organizations in the country. Everyone kind of put aside their differences and united behind him and thought, well, you know, the left can at least at least influence the debate a bit. And not only did we do that, but we won in a sense that we got Jeremy Corbyn into into office as a leader of the uh, of the, the Labour Party. So, yes, it was like a moment. It was one of these sort of breakages in history where um, the unexpected happens and things can just change very quickly because it was the 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 least possible thing that you could imagine. I mean, I remember thinking back in 2015 that like people like Jeremy Corbyn and his other supporters, lawmakers like Diane Abbott, who, you know, although I, I never had any time for the Labour Party because to me, the Labour Party growing up in, in, um, in the early 2000s, you know, my in terms of my political education in the anti-war movement and things like that, um, the Labour Party was the war party, you know, it was a Labour Party had brought Britain into the war against Afghanistan, the war against Iraq. That gave me a very negative impression of the Labour Party. But then there would always be one or two people at the anti on our side at the anti-war marches and so forth. And the people doing that were people like Tony Benn, the people like Diane Abbott, and Jeremy Corbyn. So, you know, it was it was uh it was a real change. It was something that you could uh that is was almost impossible to imagine until it happened. Right. And it seems like it may have been impossible for Corbyn himself to have imagined because he seems sort of ill prepared for the onslaught that uh he is faced with uh, immediately upon taking the reins. Uh I don't maybe maybe a I don't know if you think this is a good way to approach this. So if you could, if, if there's another aspect of it that might be a better entry point, you could let me know. But the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, it, it seems relevant to this discussion in terms of how understanding the kind of insane tenor of all this, which as I read the details here, I always thought that it was nonsense and, and contrived. But then reading the, your book, you lay out, you know, you show just how absurd it was. How does this definition of anti-Semitism uh, relate to the bigger, you know, very dubious way that anti-Semitism was, was applied as a critique of, of Corbyn and labor and how it was to his undoing? What, what about, what's this definition and how, why is it so problematic? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the, so the IRC, RA definition is something that only came about in 2016, which, you know, is ironic considering it, its proponents, you know, claim it to be this internationally supported definition. And somebody uh, online the other day made the, a really good point that I retweeted about how if you, you know, they claim it's the, the international definition of anti-Semitism. But actually, if you look at its supporters, really its own only supporters are European countries and you know, European settler colonies, basically, um, you know, the US, Israel, um, and these European countries. And that's because people in the global south generally tend to understand that this is a bit of a, 
bit of a scam and a bit of a hoax. And the problem with the definition is that it is not... Well, first of all, it, it contains two general parts. So the first part is of a, a definition of anti-Semitism. And the problem with that definition is it's quite vague. And, and it, it says something along the lines of anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews. And then it gets into the reasons for that. But then after the, the short definition which has been criticised by lots of Jewish groups as just too vague to be useful. But the main problem with it come, uh, comes after that short definition, which are so-called examples of anti-Semitism. Now, some of, those anti, some of those examples sound OK on their face, but others are uh, just ridiculous. And they, like, so one of the things that pro... Uh, Israel groups say sometimes is that what well, you shouldn't conflate all Jews. You know, it's, it's anti-Semitic to hold Jews responsible for the state of Israel. Okay, well that's said sometimes, but then pro-Israel groups often do the op often are the ones doing that. They say you know Israel is the Jewish state. The problem is with these um, so-called examples of anti-Semitism is they conflate. The criticism of the state of Israel with criticism, you know, with with Jews as a whole, basically. So they're saying it's anti. One of the examples says that it's anti anti-Semitic to um, to essentially to call for one state, basically in Palestine, in in historic Palestine, um, to to the way they put it is denying the the rights of i don't have it before me but denying the you know the rights of israel as a jewish state so you know this to self-determine strange if you if you i don't understand this goes into every debate about israel which is like if you extrapolate these uh sort of assertions to uh into general principles they're completely ridiculous like yeah. it's like saying do you if you what is it about Judaism versus like Mormonism that requires you to accept that there must be a Mormon state or, or whatever? Exactly. I mean, it's if you'd say that people would look if you started saying that about like Mormonism or anything else, people would think you were a, a lunatic or a fringe Mormon fascist cult leader. Or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's Yeah, this is exactly it. I mean, this whole thing of the so-called right of Israel to exist. Israel is the only state in the world that claims this right. You know, there's no such concept, even in international law, of the right of a state to exist. I mean, a friend of mine, David Miller, who's a brilliant academic who was really purged out of British academia because he's, he opposes Zionism and because he's done some really important and groundbreaking work on the pro-Israel lobby, especially in this country, um, despite two investigations finding no evidence and finding him no not guilty of anti-semitism um he has made the really good point that um you know although zionist organizations and the israel lobby and the state of israel itself make this claim that israel has a quote-unquote right to exist um you know there is no other state that makes this claim and and uh, you know there there was one pro-Israel propagandist who was was trying to make this uh, comparison to British school children and saying, well, you know, you should understand the difference between criticizing policies of Israel and criticizing Israel's right to exist because you wouldn't criticize 
You wouldn't question Britain's right to exist. Well, David Miller says, I'm Scottish. I do think Britain doesn't have a right to exist, right? <laughs> The notion of a state as having rights as though it were a, a the anthropomorphization of the state or the, yeah. the raising of the state to some sort of metaphysical level. I mean, that's a hallmark of fascism, right? I mean, this right. is like, I don't, it's like, st like a state doesn't have, humans have rights. Like a state is a, is a, you know, an, a, an organization, a construct. I mean, this is, I don't yeah. understand how this gets repeated all the time. It's not like no state has a right to no state has a right to exist that doesn't make any sense yeah it's bizarre and then much less like much less it's it's like saying a state has a right to exist or any state has a right to exist is 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 kind of crazy in and of itself but then to flip it on its head and say that anyone who doesn't accept that a state has a right to exist is somehow a villain i mean this is where we're at it this is where the it's like there's no logic behind it but it just gets stated by powerful actors so re repetitively that i don't think people even think about it a lot of the time yeah right so i've i've got the ihra definition in front of me now and the example that i was alluding to says quote denying the jewish people their right to self-determination e.g by claiming that the existence of a state of israel is a racist endeavor well you know it's 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 problematic on so many levels like as you've just described like states don't have any inherent right to exist it's it's people that have a right to live people have a right to you know not be killed and to be safe and so forth and to be free of war and uh poverty and so forth but there's you know states are support supposed to support those rights of people and not the other way around um and you know this this uh, so there's that level but there's also this level that um clay they're saying that claiming that the existence of a state of israel is a racist endeavor well you know what else do you call the expulsion of the majority of the indigenous population of palestine between 1947 and 1949 was known by palestinians as the nakba or catastrophe you know they were systematically driven out of their homes so that Israel could establish itself as a quote-unquote Jewish state. Well, you know, what else do you call that if not racism? And it's, that's in the kind of racism that's inherent to any settler colonial project, regardless of what kind of um, religion or ethnicity it associates itself with. Um, and there, there is no, there, you know, that is inherently racist. But the... The, what pro-Israel groups have done in recent years is to try and flip it around and say, well, the anti-racists are the real racists because they're denying this and that. So this this IHRA definition, it came in in 2016 and it came at a really convenient time as a political weapon that was then wielded against Jeremy Corbyn. But I, I don't mean to suggest that, that was, the IHRA definition was... Um, created to uh, specifically to use against Corbyn, although it may have been one factor, we don't know. But this was part of a battle that had been going on for many years against the Palestine Solidarity Movement by pro-Israel groups. And I do get into some of that in the book, that there was a forerunner definition of the Archery definition called the um, 
the U- EHRC, I think it was, um, definition, which was the, it was a European, it, there was a European Union body which was um, set up to monitor racism and xenophobia. And they made a, they made a definition, they drafted a definition which was never fully accepted and they never they never fully endorsed it, but it was drafted up, you know, for for input and exchange. And you know, it was basically identical to the IHRA definition in terms that it had these provisions, these so-called examples of anti-Semitism, which were problematic and sort of muddled together Jewish people as a whole with Israel. Like there was no and I argue in detail about that. There was no need for these kind of provisions to be in. If it was an objectively anti-racist document, and an objectively anti-racist document wouldn't have needed to mention Israel really in any kinds of way. So, um, one example of that is um, one of these examples, so-called examples of anti-Semitism, says, "quote accusing the Jews as a people or Israel of, as a state." of inventing or exaggerating the Holocaust. Now, you know, part of that sounds perfectly fine because, you know, saying that um, Jewish people have invented the Holocaust or exaggerated the Holocaust, you know, go on a little and say that's probably anti-Semitism, you know. So that's that's fine. But then why is why have they inserted Israel in that? You don't need that part. You don't need that clause of the sentence or Israel as, as a state. Like there's there's no reason to put that in. Like just the line without mentioning Israel would be a perfectly fine example of anti-Semitism. And the only reason to put those examples to to include the state of Israel in those examples is to offer a kind of muddying of the waters where the that Israel supporters can say that criticisms of Israel were anti-Semitic. Um, and uh, you know there, there's several of those examples in that that document. Uh, which do that and it was then used to create this almighty problem with inside the Labour Party in 2018. And there were other issues in, I mean, 2018, that's the same year that uh, you you have this dust up with Ken Livingston, right? And this is kind of a, this is one of those sort of forks in the road, right? And how did uh, Corbyn and Labour you know, bungle this this episode. Uh, maybe explain who Ken Livingston was and, and how. This right. Happened. Okay. Well, that it was twenty eighteen when Ken Livingston did finally was finally pushed out of the Labour Party. But it was twenty. It st- it began in twenty sixteen. So first of all, to explain Ken Livingston. So Ken Livingston, it was another one of this. So I mentioned earlier this this left wing fringe of the Labour Party, which you know, supported these socialist causes from within Labour, despite Labour being dominated by a more right-wing faction. Ken Livingston was another one from this left-wing tendency. Um, He was famous in the 80s as running local government in uh, London, in the the Greater London Council, to such an extent. He was like a a bitter foe of Margaret Thatcher when Thatcher was in government. He sort of um, was a, a thorn in her side where he was using the funds from the local government in London to support anti-racist causes, you know, to offer solidarity with people around the world and to in, to increase the fortunes and to increase, increase living standards of ordinary working class Londoners to such an extent that Thatcher actually abolished the GLC 
um, in order to get rid of Ken Livingstone and his supporters. Um, but then after that, in uh, when Tony Blair's government did come to power, there was a Labour government in power, you know, although it was uh, a neoliberal Labour government. Ken Livingstone um, was, after he was deposed as a as the in, deposed in local government, he became an MP and he became one of these backbench MPs like Jeremy Corbyn, supporting uh, left wing causes from the fringes of the Labour Party and outside of Labour government. And again, a thorn in the side of the leadership, criticising the leadership and openly defying it. But the Labour governments of the late 90s uh, brought in a series of what's what was called devolution measures across the country. Because, you know, Britain is a strange country. Like I, I was I was mentioning earlier how uh, David Miller was saying Britain has no right to exist. But the other point that he makes is, there is no such technically no such country as Britain. It's called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So, you know, first of all, you know, Northern Ireland really should be a part of Ireland. It should be part of historically it's clearly the same country and it this the, the statelet of Northern Ireland was gerrymandered as as a way to help Britain maintain imperial control in Northern in, in the north of Ireland. Um but the second part of that is that we have because of the complicated history of the island of Britain, there are um, several languages in Britain, you know, that were basically more or less, certainly marginalised and some of them were wiped out by English over the years. Um, and in some ways, you know, Britain is kind of a multi-ethnic state. Like we see, you saw in um, in Yugoslavia and um, the Soviet Union, in some ways, there's, there's lots of differences, but there's some similarities. So we have Scotland, Wales uh, and England. Uh, and, you know, arguably some people might try to argue, say that uh, Cornwall is a, is a nation. I think it's debatable, but there was certainly a Cornish language um, which has some which was very similar to uh, Welsh. Um, I'm, I'm originally from South Wales myself. Um, so Britain's an unusual country in, in that respect. And what that, me what that meant was that there was long this kind of pressure um, within the Labour movement around that uh, is around the Labour Party to have um, decentralised uh decentralization in the country because there was periodic upswings of especially scottish and to a lesser extent welsh nationalism calling for more you know at at the extreme fringes of, of cessation from britain or from so-called great britain altogether and to, um, you know we saw um not that long ago unsuccessful uh, referendum in in scotland and these are um you know, political projects that have a lot of support in there to a greater or lesser degree. And it was, it, long story short, what it meant was that the Labour government, in order to try and resolve this issue, did engage in devolution. So there was a, that's how the Scottish Parliament began. There's an assembly in Wales, it's called the, you know, it's called the Welsh Assembly, it doesn't have quite as many powers as the Scottish uh, Parliament. But that also meant that London was given. Um, a new city hall and a new mayor. This is a long, long way around roundabout of telling you where Ken Livingstone got his political power at the late nineties and early noughties. So, uh, first of all, he became the Labour Party um, 
he became the Labour Party mayor. He won the, the very first directly elected mayor of London who had actual powers, you know, uh, over the city, over transport and certain policies and so forth. And he, he, he won, and he won despite the fact that he was um, criticising Tony Blair, and he, um, they, they kind of gerrymandered, they, they gerrymandered the Labour Party internal elections against Ken Livingstone, and he ran as an independent, and he won, and he beat the official Labour Party candidate because he, he, he was this kind of charismatic figure who was effective. He had a, reputa- a justified reputation as being an effective leader of local government and having popular policies that helped out, like I said, working class people in London. So he had this national profile. By the time of the, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, rise, though, in 2015... He um, was retired from politics. He'd served two terms as the mayor of London. He won a lot of successes. But then he, he was then, he, he lost the third term, uh, what would have been his third term election to Boris Johnson, who later became the prime minister. Um, there was this real sort of uh, right-wing media campaign against him, which did actually include anti-Semitism smears. So uh, it, by the time of the Corbyn phenomenon, he became... He was retired from politics um, and he was, as he would always say, like he he went, he was just went back to his garden and he was serving as a house husband and all this kind of stuff. But because he was one of very few uh, pro Corbyn supporters within the Labour Party who had this kind of heavyweight national profile within on a national stage that, you know, journalists would know who he was, that. They could bring him on their programs to argue the pro Corbyn side and all this kind of stuff. Um, he would he would he agreed to do it in 2015, 2016, and he supported Jeremy Corbyn. And when this smear campaign of being, um, you know, of of trying to associate Jeremy Corbyn with anti-Semitism came along, while Corbyn took an almost kind of pacifist kind of route of just saying, oh, this is terrible and, you know, we'll deal with it rather than openly sort of saying this is a smear campaign. Ken Livingston took the more direct route in saying, well, they've always done these kind of smears with me, as they had done and tried to do. So, of course, they're going to do it with Jeremy Corbyn. And, uh, you know, this this was basically what led to uh, his downfall. Right. I mean, this was, it seems um, that, that that's the sort of line they should have taken, but that's the road they did not take. Another character uh, who's in a similar vein, but maybe even closer to the party or more relevant, is uh, Chris Williamson. And this whole mm. thing is, the way that he went down is is bizarre to me. Um, can you explain this? And what's the deal with this Jackie Walker film? I mean, this whole saga seems convoluted and kind of unbelievable. And I'm used to, I mean, American politics are bad <laughs> and often quite quite stupid, but I, I I think growing up you kind of have a sense that the British have a more have a, a are slightly less insane and in, in politically, but now I don't really think that. I think it's no. actually worse in Britain, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. So I the important thing to understand I think about all this is that, as I mentioned before, there was this popular movement of really hundreds of thousands of people who joined or rejoined the Labour Party to back Corbyn. Now, if you're the establishment, 
if you're part of the capitalist establishment, if you're part of the, you know, the the lobbyists, if you're part of the Israel lobby, whatever interest it may be, who's trying to keep the status quo, how can you defeat a popular movement? Well, you can't, except by dividing it, dividing and conquering, you know. So that's really what they set out to do. And they tried lots of, they basically threw all the mud at the wall and they saw what stuck. And I think what stuck was anti-Semitism because it wasn't fought against directly. And I and that is my, that's my analysis of the situation. And the, the, Jeremy Corbyn took this approach and he was prevailed upon, I think, by his advisors who were more, yes, they were from the left, but of the Labour Party, but they had a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them had more kind of experience within the Labour Party machine. And that meant that they, I think they argued more for just trying to, um, well, we'll just condemn this you know, we'll say, oh, you know, there's an anti-Semitism problem and it's awful and we'll investigate and we'll condemn anti-Semitism. OK, well, who can disagree with condemning anti-Semitism? Of course, you know, anti-Semitism is terrible. And, you know, no one can disagree with that. But the problem is, if that's your line as a politician coming out every time and saying, this is terrible, we condemn anti-Semitism. When there's a fake allegation of anti-Semitism, if that's your line, you're implying that it's it was correct. You're implying and saying, well, there was a problem. And when Ken Livingston is being called anti-Semitic for not having done anti anything anti-Semitic, what he'd actually done is pointed to a historical fact that uh, the German Zionist movement in the 1930s um, had a an agreement with Hitler and the Nazi government was just coming in, in in the 1930s, all the way through the 30s until, up until the start of the war, um, that there was this uh, kind of collaboration between Zionism and the Nazis. He brought that up. Uh, he Well, he didn't actually even bring it up. He mentioned it in response to a question about the Nazis. And, you know, you know, you can argue about whether he should or shouldn't have done that. Was it strategic? But the problem was that the Labour, uh, some large parts of the Labour Party left then just sort of um, went bought into this kind of mass media hysteria that was manufactured and said, well, we need to throw him out and we need to get rid of him and we should basically throw him under the bus. And um, Jeremy Corbyn was really reluctant to do that. But, you know, he was basically prevailed upon to not support. He didn't openly condemn him, but he did say, well, you know, there was concerns about what Ken Livingston said and all this kind of stuff. And um, what that meant was... A lot of people thought, well, you know, Ken Livingston, he's a bit mad, isn't he? And so we'll just sort of, we'll we'll forget this. And, you know, he's not even really, you know, he's not in frontline politics anymore. And, you know, if we just sort of throw him under the bus and then maybe we can move on from this issue and it will be fine and they'll stop doing this kind of thing. That, it only, it, the opposite happened. It only emboldened them. And what they did was, and why it was so successful is, they can't attack the whole movement at once. Not straight away, anyway. So they picked off people one by one. So, you know, it was Ken Livingston, and then it was um, Jackie Walker, Chris Williamson, lots of different people. And it set this... And in the end, Jeremy Corbyn himself, you know, after he uh, lost the 2019 election, and he made... And, and after there was this investigation, which I into the Labour Party... 
um, because the pro-Israel group, two pro-Israel groups were claiming that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn had become quote unquote institutionally anti-Semitic. This it's, official to government. Be clear, in- to be clear, was there any any policy or law that Corbyn was or that the Labour Party was pursuing, which could be construed in any way as targeting out or 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 or, or making life more difficult for Jewish people in Britain? I mean, is there any no. way that you can actually? <laughs> None whatsoever. None, okay. none at all. Like, and and his, even his policies on Israel were not radical or in any kind of way. His position was really, I mean, unfortunately, in my view, was really the same as his predecessor Ed, Ed Miliband, this soft leftist, which was to recognise a so-called uh, Palestinian state, which is not really a Palestinian state. It it's the Palestinian Authority, which is 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 a is a puppet of the Israeli occupation, really. Um, so he had no radical, and certainly not against Jews. It, you know, it was the opposite. If anything, he was, um, he went out of his way to try and embrace even pro-Israel groups within the Labour Party, like the Jewish Labour Movement. And so, um, but none of that helped because n- this was not about anti-Semitism. It was about his anti-imperialist policies, and it was about his su- general general support for the Palestinian solidarity movement in general that's was what it was really about and there was no factual basis to any of this kind of mass hysteria and um because of that it just meant that they needed to manufacture this sense of crisis around individuals so chris williamson became one and and the chris williamson was um, one of these uh, labor party socialists and um he moved more and more to the left he became um he wasn't quite of Corbyn's generation. He came um, somewhat after, but he had a he had a successful record in local government, um, and then he later became an MP. And he 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 was um, he he re-entered Parliament during the twenty seventeen election, which you know Corbyn's popularity really gave him not an outright victory in the election, but he increased Labour's majority by a massive amount and nearly removed the the Tory government from power, and. Um, Chris Williamson was, uh, I mean, I recount it in my book. I I did a new interview with him where Chris Williamson was ready to play the kind of foil to Jeremy Corbyn, where Jeremy Corbyn could continue with his sort of, um, and it wasn't an act. This was who Corbyn was and is. He's this kind of, um, he doesn't like confrontation and this kind of uh, sort of Christian pacifist sort of tradition that I described earlier, that he could just sort of try and continue on being this person who would reconcile, and he tried all the way along to reconcile the different factions of his party, even though they were not to be reconciled with. But uh, Chris Williamson was always willing to play the kind of foil to that, where he would take them on, take them on head on, and just basically, you know, tell them to F off in his very kind of... Uh, working class way you know he he was uh he was a builder uh when he was younger um and uh he and he took them on head on and he did it he was the only mp to do it specifically on the issue of anti-semitism smears and he said it famously when he first came was elected back into the into parliament in 2017 he was interviewed by the guardian and he said um Look, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm not saying there's no, there's never ever any anti-Semitism within the left. I'm not saying it never happens. 
occasionally it probably does but this is a really dirty smear that's being used against Jeremy Corbyn who has this long record of anti-racism and so forth well after that they really marked his card and they really gunned for him and they they went for him and there was a really two-year smear campaign against him and they got him in the end and he was um he was basically essentially kicked out of the Labour Party. I mean, technically, in the end, he resigned, but he was really not given any choice because he probably almost certainly would have been um, expelled anyway. And um, he was removed in exactly the same way Jeremy Corbyn now faces. He was removed as the Labour Party's candidate um, for his local seat. That was another one of those episodes of this whole thing, which seemed kind of surreal. Uh, what, you know, what happened to to Williamson, who seemed to be a you know an honorable person trying to fight the good fight in his party, but mm. there's the other aspect of this, which to me seemed sort of you know even more comical or in its absurdity, I guess. The uh, mural, this there's this mural kerfuffle. Uh, this this part seems even odder to me uh that it would become a major political issue but what was the deal with this mural and why did it possibly become a a a major political issue in britain yeah i mean the whole thing was bizarre like there was it was like i was saying earlier there was anything basically that they thought could uh manufacture any kind of sense of scandal against jeremy corbyn so there was this uh I mean, it's hard to describe on an audio podcast. People can sort of Google it and look it up. There was this uh, mural in East London that was put up on a wall by uh, this uh, artist. And it was kind of, a, you know, it's one of these kind of things where you see it, it, it was a pyramid. It was the, the I, what is it called? The pyramid on the dollar, on the dollar bill with the eye on top of yeah, it. It's kind of a, a Illuminati style. Image yeah. Or that's what people sort of conflate it to. Yeah. and And then there was like this... Underneath that, there was like a table of uh, of sort of rich looking men underneath it. And they were playing a game of Monopoly on the backs of what looked to be exploited naked workers. It was a bit of a strange mural, but Corbyn, you know... It, it was a pretty generic agitprop, yeah. uh, anti-capitalism, you know, anti-exploitation sort of... Statement. Yeah, it was not. it was not any kind of like incisive political statement necessarily but i don't think it was particularly offensive either i mean what was then what was what was argued was that you know one of these men is supposed to be one of the rothschilds family so therefore this is an anti-semitic conspiracy theory and i think you can read into the mural what you what you want to read into it but i don't think there's any question that jeremy corbyn had intended that at all and you know, there, there. It was a, it was just a Facebook posting from a decade, what is now a decade ago, from twenty twenty fourteen. And Jeremy Corbyn made a very brief comment. The artist had just said, "Well, they they're going to remove my mural um, from the walls." And um, Corbyn had just made a comment because in those days he was just like this backbench MP would just say whatever he wanted on his Facebook. And it was just a just a throwaway comment of, well, why are they removing it? You know, they because sh- th- he's he does have a record of supporting free speech. And so um, 
this was then, I don't know if it was stashed away at the time or it was later brought up. It was the, the main point to me was that the, the MP who was bringing this up as a problem, as an issue, Luciana Berger, was, you know, she was feeding into this anti-Semitism smear campaign by uh, at a key time, at a time when there was um, local elections, where every time there, there would be an election and uh, if Corbyn didn't perform, if he wasn't perceived to have performed well enough, the MPs in the Labour Party would then use that against him and say, well, we need to get rid of him and uh, we, you know, we need to have an internal coup, which they tried to do in, in 2016. Um, and they repeatedly tried to coup him from within. Um, and they just threw all this stuff at him. And it was not anything that... Uh, it was It was then treated as if it was a, a good faith thing by the mainstream media, when it clearly wasn't, because Lu none of them mentioned the fact that Luciana Berger had her own motives for trying to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, which is that she was from the right wing of the party. She was from the neoliberal Blairite wing of the party. You know, she was very close to Tony Blair and his family. You know, a lot of local artists claim that she was parachuted into her seat in Liverpool. Liverpool is a very left-wing city. You know, it, it's it's incredibly hard for anyone except for the Labour Party or parties or even or, or independents to the left of the Labour Party to get in, in into any of the seats in Liverpool. And so Liverpool seats are considered to be safe seats for the Labour Party. But she was parachuted in despite not... Um, being from Liverpool by the Labour Party machine during the, the, the Tony Blair years because she was perceived to be friendly but to, to that neoliberal faction of Labour. But, but more than that as well, she was also an Israel lobbyist. And I don't mean just that she was... Um, I don't mean just that she was generically supportive or vaguely supportive in this kind of liberal Zionist way of Israel, although she was that too. Um, she was actually... She actually worked for... She was a paid employee of Labour Friends of Israel, which is this professional lobbying organisation, which works closely with the Israeli state, as I show in my book. Like, it's, it's essentially a, it's a cutout for the Israeli embassy in London. It's um, really, a fr I mean, I argue is really a front group for the Israeli embassy, as was really proved by Al Jazeera's undercover investigation in 2017. Um, and, you know, this was mentioned by nobody in the media. It was just, oh... It was presented. Her 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 identity as a Jewish woman was essentially weaponized because it was like, oh, you know, Labour Jews are fleeing the party under Jeremy Corbyn and all this kind of stuff. When actually there were right wing MPs, some of whom happened to be Jewish, were um, leaving the party or criticizing the party or sabotaging the party from within because of politics, not because. Um, some of them happened to be Jewish or because there was any actual real problem of anti-Semitism. There was no evidence of it. Like all the, all the figures, all the facts and figures show time and time again that, um, you know, anti-Semitic attitudes in the Labour Party during the Jeremy Corbyn era were much, to the extent that they even existed, were far, far lower than any other political party um, for the most part. And, you know, this was not and it was it was far lower than the general population, you know, which. Yeah. Again, I'm not like Chris Williams. I'm not saying that it never it was it would be impossible to happen. You know, this was at its height during the Corbyn years. The Labour Party was a mass movement. You know, it, there was between five and six hundred thousand people within the party. 
Um, you know, it was often said at that time that it was probably the largest or certainly one of the largest political parties in Western Europe. Um, and this this is like nothing we've seen in, in, in the neoliberal era in, in the West. And so, you know, yes, of course, there is going to be some exceptions where there, there could be ignorant attitudes or there could even be anti-Jewish attitudes. That could happen, you know, but it could be dealt with through political education and, and so forth. Um, and and I mean, yes, like they... in the U.S., you have like there's a U.S. white supremacy, you know, prevails and is an accomplished fact of American society. And then you can see the real impacts of white supremacy when you look at, demog you know, uh, social indicators among black people and white people. OK, and you can see that, oh, yeah, this is a racist society and this racism is a big problem in the United States. Right. Um, and you can. It, we have a liberal kind of problematic tendency to to obsess over racism as a personal individual failing in the United States. And so mm. we really want to look at like, oh, did this white person say something that evinces some racist attitude towards black people and, and so on? Oh, this is a problem, problem. OK, you know, people shouldn't say racist things or, or whatever. But in the case like in uh, in Britain, I mean, is there any indication is like. To what extent can you say these things? Like if Chris Williams is saying, well, I guess somebody somewhere might have said something anti-Semitic. I mean, where, who, how would you possibly say that that never happens? But I mean, is this a problem in Britain that you can say like, oh, the Jewish people have it. it anti-Semitism should be a huge issue in Britain because the, look at the how Jewish people have it very bad. I mean, what is the, how is, how does it have this cachet in, in, in discussion? How can people act like this is such a huge problem that you need to somehow parse every person's attitudes or social media posts for any hint of this terrible problem in British politics? I mean, is it, what, how does this, how is this understood by British people? Yeah, it's a really good point. And this is a point that is made by, I mean, like America, you know, we have problems with the far right. We have problems with neo-Nazis, fascists, you know, anti-migrant movements and all that kind of thing. Um, and the problem is quite often um, the ruling Conservative Party, what they're saying and what their policies are carrying out are incredibly against uh, against migrants and all, uh, uh, putting forward these kinds of institutional problems for people of colour certainly, um, and this is a this is a, an issue that uh, black and other minority ethnic groups have been saying and trying to explain over the last few years over you know certainly over the last seven to eight years when all this was kicking off in the Labour Party was that there is now in the Labour Party especially a, what they say is a hierarchy of racism which is to say that um, the issue of anti-semitism anti-Jewish prejudice however you want to call it is privileged in a, in a way and is considered uh, career ending or um, disres disrespectful and, and um, it's considered bad in a way that other forms of racism are not. That it's anti-Semitism is privileged over anti-black racism or Islamophobia. Um, you know, a Labour Party MP could get away with an Islamophobic comment or, you know, a slight uh, uh, against a, a black MP or a black activist in a way that they wouldn't get away with against uh, a Jewish person 
or even a comment that is not actually against a Jewish per- person, but is misportrayed in that way because it's criticism of Israel. And so I just to answer your question, I think that the, the reason is, in one word, is Israel, is that Israel is perceived to be this useful... I mean, Zionism has always portrayed itself as a useful tool for imperialism, right? Going back, even going back before, like Zionism's first appeal was to the Ottoman Empire. They went, they went to 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 the sultans. They weren't very successful there. They, you know, they did. There were some marginal things they managed to get, but they, they the Zionism's appeal was then to the British Empire, and that that was for the most part successful. Although they there was certainly a falling out between the British Empire and the Zionist movement. They were briefly at war for one minute. And then, you know, after the decline of the British Empire or its passing on as a vassal to the American Empire, Zionism and the Israel lobby and the state of Israel has portrayed itself as a useful tool to the American Empire. And so I think the issue now of Zionism is also, on top of that, has become a useful tool against dissent within the West, against when there's challenges to the neoliberal uh establishment status quo that we see in the west uh challenges like um like jeremy corbyn like bernie sanders like jean-luc melanchon in france these kinds of uh departures uh populist movements that are going to bring uh hoping and aiming to bring change uh, to this uh, neoliberal establishment that we have we see this kind of weapon of the weaponized form of anti-Semitism that is used against uh, these challenges as a smear. And that then they, the Israel lobby, my point in the book is that the Israel lobby doesn't act on its own. It teams up with these other forces of, uh, of the deep state, of British and American deep states, and they work together. And it's become a very useful weapon. And, and I argue there's a sort of reactionary vanguard that is then used to destroy and take apart uh, and... Uh, really manage and neutralize these challenges to the status quo in the West. Yeah, I mean, this this seems to be like a, a common cause across uh, across really the political right, which includes the left parties of of Britain and the U.S. I mean, the politics, the political situation, I feel like is getting so ridiculous as to be untenable. And it's this, I think, is merging with an international situation where the empire is kind of collapsing. I mean, you, the, at the heart of the problem is that like labor is is a joke, just like the Democratic Party is a joke. It calls itself labor, but it really is capital. I mean, if it was going to be honest, it would be capital. <laughs> and the Democratic Party is, is the oligarchic party in the United States. It's so uh, ridiculous when you when you look at it and we have these conversations as though we're a functional democracy where debate and words matter and logic matter. But such utter bullshit just carries the day again and again. And I think with this Israel situation in, uh, and the way that this was used, this anti-equating criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism in, in Britain, the problem it produces is if you're going to be on the left or have a, a movement to unite people around left leftist challenges to the status quo, it's going to be based on some ideas about the value of human life full stop and the value of people to be free of like oppressive mm. domination and exploitation. And anybody who looks at the Palestinian situation is going to have sympathy for the Palestinians. And so any left-wing movement is going to be, any, any principled left-wing movement is very likely to be 
uh, critical of Israel unless for tactical reasons they just shut up about it because of the power of, of Israel. So, I mean, how does how do you see this dynamic uh, changing in the future? I mean, has the left learned anything from this to the extent that we can think of the left as any kind of coherent entity capable of learning or, or acting in any way anyway uh, in Britain or, or in the U.S.? I mean, what's where do they where do you go from this whole uh, saga to uh, uh, trying to confront these forces? Because it's not you're not just trying to win the argument about Israel. You're really taking on an entire system and that doesn't even really show itself. And this, I think, is, is part of yeah. the problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a large part of the British left has learned nothing from this and they uh, they really just want to pretend it didn't happen and sort of sweep it under the carpet and that it was Corbyn's downfall was all about Brexit and that anti-Semitism was just like it played it it, uh, it played a minor role at best and that, you know, that, um, you know, if anything, by trying to resist it, we, you know, people made it worse. But there was never any resistance to it except the, the, res the resistance to the anti-Semitism smears came from it came from the the grassroots certainly like there was efforts and there was people you know there was individuals like Ken Livingstone, Jackie Walker, and Chris Williamson who tried to resist it, but they weren't in the driving seat of the Labour Party's um, the Labour Party's leadership under Corbyn. You know there were supporters of Corbyn, but they didn't have um, any kind of key role, and there was no. Um, you know, there was no there was no pushback that was done. You know, so this idea that um, that those kind of ideas, I think, are really just a non-starter. And I think that not only the British left, but we we need to learn the true role of of the Zionist movement and of the Israel lobby today um, in acting against popular movements in the West in in challenges to this status quo. Um, and until those lessons are learned and, you know, there's a there's a change of tactics, I don't think, I think the results are going to be the same. And I think we, you know, we see that even today, even, you know, this past weekend, as soon before we're filming this, we see they're trying to basically do a Jeremy Corbyn on Roger Waters. You know, they're trying to, they're trying to make an example of him because they, you know, because Roger Waters, this, you know, internationally renowned musician, founder of Pink Floyd, who wrote all of its most, you know, successful albums and well-recognised albums, he uses this massive international platform he has and the, the, the money that he has and so forth to defend the rights of the Palestinians to live in freedom and free from... Um, the apartheid military occupation that the Israelis impose on them. And also, you know, just generally for a better world for people in, in the world in general, that, you know, we don't want to have a thermonuclear apocalypse in uh, over, the, over the Ukraine. And he wants peace negotiations to take place between Ukraine and Russia and just very moderate things like this. And yet, because of that, he they're trying to... Um, smear him as an anti-Semite and uh, as some kind of conspiracy theory lunatic or whatever. And they're really going against him. And again, we see this issue. Um, 
Israel's uh, public figures, Israel's so-called diplomats have been attacking him online and large parts of the uh, mainstream media then take those attack lines and just regurgitate them. And so it's a big problem. I mean, I think that, um, you know, we were discussing before Aaron, and I think uh, as the difference is, of course, that, um, like you said, Roger Waters doesn't have... He doesn't have to run for public office so he can kind of say what he wants. Yeah, I think they're dumb to go after him because he just, at this point, the media is disreputable and people hate the media. And it, I mean, if Donald Donald Trump made his yeah. whole, you know, his whole brand was call, calling them fake news and such. And to be, to be candid, he's been vindicated by it. I mean, every, they've, Things have gotten so strange, and I don't know how much it is in Britain, but I'm guessing it's similar. But all this disinformation, mm. like they're all, they're so afraid now because I think that the emperor's nudity is just so obvious at this point yeah. that they have to be like, well, that's disinformation, that's dis disinformation. But it doesn't take very long if, to to uh, to not to notice that the two main huge stories of like disinformation that were actually impactful were Russiagate. And like the the Hunter Biden laptop thing, and in this in those cases, the disinformation came from the state uh, in the form of like hoaxes. They in terms of them using disinformation uh, hoaxes to to dissuade people uh, or to, to to basically create false narratives. I mean, and then they're still going on saying like, well, we need to do more on disinformation to protect you when it's like right out there in the public record that they are the main disinformers. I mean, all of these yeah. people hate the media more and more for good reason. And uh, I'm hoping that more more politicians start to just become more anti-establishment, but in, in actually substantial ways rather than sort of demagogic ways like a Trump character. But, mm. you know, it's too bad that Bernie did not have Bernie Sanders and Corbyn did not have Trump's general attitude to, because I, right. I think we're getting at the stage <laughs> where that that actually could be a winning formula. Although I, I guess perhaps there's a question of when, you know, it's hard for leaders to know when that moment has happened and Trump seems like he almost didn't even want to get elected or take it seriously. So he, it's hard to know. Yeah. And they gave him free airtime, which they wouldn't give to anybody on the left. So it's all very, it's all very strange, but I do think that the waters with going after Roger waters, they, they may uh, be, going to going too far because he he doesn't care and the more that he just says just gives him the finger and keeps performing the more that he looks cool and they look pathetic <laughs> yeah absolutely so maybe they can yeah. win in the rock and roll venues even if the, <laughs> the political system is is hopeless um yeah well i i uh i i tip my hat to you for putting this all out in uh in the book the way that you did it it gives you a lot of details in and uh in depth into looking into this situation and understanding it because it seems so strange from from my distant perspective looking at this although corbin corbin's rise also seems strange in a way because he was so humble and uh mm. you know he seems like a decent guy at heart he just seemed yeah. overmatched um but your your book is 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 worth reading it's an important book where can people uh follow your work 
So all my articles are published or republished at my my newsletter. So it's asawinstanley.substack.com. So I do some original journalism and columns on there. And I also republish my appearances on podcasts such as this one. And um, I republish my articles where my reporting for Electronic Intifado is my main outlet. Um, and um, you can buy the book from orbooks.com orbooks.com well i do recommend it it is called weaponizing anti-semitism how the israel lobby brought down jeremy corbyn and you have endorsements from people like roger waters and katie halper uh our friend our friends felix biederman and uh, ben norton so uh and noam chomsky uh so i think you've got some good endorsements here and uh, I do recommend the book. So, uh, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today and talking about all this. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Appreciate it. I would like to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. Please check the show notes for links to Asa Winstanley's Twitter, Substack, and to the webpage for his new book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. For the episode art, I couldn't think of a way to symbolically capture the establishment slash Israel Lobby alliance to crush Corbyn that somebody couldn't construe as being problematic. Uh, so I just found a cool picture of Jeremy Corbyn holding a prodigious zucchini whose enormity symbolizes the failure of the post-Thatcher Labour Party in Britain. So until next time, keep chasing the light. Keep chasing the light.